0: Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Justice Eepen, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my splendiferous co-host Sunday Mint and my enchanting producer Eric Ostrich. How are y'all doing?
1: Great. How are you? Good
0: tops. Thanks for asking Sunday. That's so sweet. This season's theme is adopting Elixir. And today we're joined by a special guest, Jason Axelson. How are you, Jason? Oh, I'm great. Thanks for having me. We're super glad to have you. Thanks for coming on the show. We were going to make a joke about you being the son of Axel or the son of Jay.
2: Son of Axel is more probably more accurate, but
0: yeah, I'd have to ask my
2: grandma to be sure.
0: If we had a live studio audience right now, they'd just be like laughing hysterically. (laughs) Laugh track. We need a laugh track. We'll get one. We'll get one. Well, super glad to have you on the show, Jason. Let's just, I mean, I'm just curious, where are you calling us from? I know that it's early morning from you. It's sort of mid after Mm -hmm. just noon for us. Where are you calling us from? Uh, I'm calling from
2: Honolulu, Hawaii. So over here, it's right about seven o'clock. So it's fairly early, but not, not bad.
0: Yeah, but I bet the weather is much nicer than it is out here in the East Coast. Good chance. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we've got the audience and myself sufficiently jealous, let's just kind of open up with some personal questions that we're really curious about how you got into programming, if you were formally trained, if you came into the field from a you know classical path or some other means.
2: Yeah, I would say overall it was a fairly classical path, um, but both my um, parents are programmers, so they were kind of pushing various things from an earlier earlier age. And one of the first things was, I don't know if you've ever heard of a Lego Mindstorms, but it's mm-hmm. basically like Lego bricks. And there's like one one large brick that has like some small CPU on it. And then you have like bricks with wires they can connect. So you have different sensors, for like a light sensor or sound and motors. And you can program with like this, like block-based um, programming language, it's like a visual programming. So my dad got me got that for me and my siblings and that was just a lot of fun to to play around with. I liked the programming a lot more than I liked the actual building of the different things, unless they had like, but I remember I made one, my like favorite accomplishment with that was making a little robot that would just follow a black line that I would, could scribble on a piece of paper.
0: How How old were you <laughs> when you were doing this? Probably about 12 or so. Do you feel like that was a good age for like, cause I've got a bunch of nieces and nephews Christmas shopping. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Might even I feel it like for this Christmas.
1: <laughs> I feel like this is a, something we've been hearing a lot of recently is like a lot of people got started by doing some kind of robotics project as a kid. So that's kind of cool to hear.
2: Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. And then after that, one thing that, well, that didn't quite work was you no, know, my parents got me like some sort of like software lifecycle development book that started by like, okay, first let's gather all the requirements for. <laughs> for our visual basic application and i got through like the first like two chapters and i hadn't built like anything in that and that that i never really got anywhere with that (laughs) but my first like full full introduction to programming was my um, ap computer science course and so that was in java i was like a junior in high school i think and i just remember the first like um few days or so of that i just really like tore through like the first couple of chapters of the book learning about actually like formalized like loops and um conditionals and everything and it just really that really clicked with me and i really really enjoyed that
0: so wait how old were you when they gave you the book maybe like 14 amazing um, your, your parents sound like my parents <laughs> <laughs> it's like completely, yeah. completely adult books for kids that's funny
2: <laughs> Yeah,
0: <laughs> uh, it wasn't project management body of knowledge, was it? No, I don't think so. Okay, that's that's yeah. the ridiculous project, <laughs> project management book my parents got me when I, I was. I feel
1: like 15. you're scarred for life if if you can remember the name of it right now.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, I could tell you. I've, I've got lots of stories of books foisted on me by my parents. I've I see Amelia Bedelia written here. Oh yeah. What is that? So, so Amelia
2: Bedelia is a children's book. Or. Sp- Children's children's book um series, and so she's like this maid for like a wealthy family or something, and she takes everything completely literally. So if you were to to ask her to draw the draw the um drapes, she would like draw you a picture of the drapes. And dusting <laughs> the couch would be like putting dust on the couch. So if you wanted to dust off, you'd have to like ask her to like, dust off the couch because her family was like very literal. So I feel like at least to me that kind of uh, applies to programming because I. I think a lot of programmers tend to take things like super extremely, like literal and
0: we have to, or else people won't put together good
2: specs. Well, computers are completely literal Mm -hmm. in that sense. So,
1: so did you read that series and then, and then say, Oh, this is interesting. I want to be a programmer. Or was it like after you became a programmer that you were reminded of that series and how literal we are?
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely the second one. And then something in like a similar vein was like my, I guess a couple of times growing up, my parents, we would play like a game where my dad, I guess, I guess you could say he would act like Amelia Bedelia, but he would do like take everything like completely literally or like kind of like opposite of how you might like intend it. And so I would always do the best out of that for my siblings.
1: <laughs> That's awesome. So, you know, you've mentioned books quite a few times now are there some resources that you find really helpful when when getting started if you were to recommend like a book series or or a tutorial to follow for somebody who's, who's getting started in the field?
2: I don't remember too many of the books from when I was first getting started in programming, but I do know in college, one of the books that I enjoyed, oh, I forget what, I want to say is like a definitive guide to JavaScript or something, but I just did that for like a... One of my like semi like capstone projects, so we didn't like learn JavaScript like in a in a in one of our courses at that time. But I just enjoy going through like it was like a th- one of those thick books, like five hundred plus pages or something. And yeah, and it was good. I don't I can't remember the title. I think it was a yellow cover, but that's not too helpful. There's an O'Reilly mm-hmm. book called JavaScript: The Definitive Guide. I think I had that one as well. Is it yellow? It's probably it was it was green at the time. <laughs> I'm sure, yeah, most O'Reilly books are probably pretty decent, so it's probably good.
1: Are they were there only were books the only resources that you, you drew on when you were learning, or were there other resources that you really found helpful?
2: I mean there was definitely I would definitely look at like blog posts and things online about how to do do things. This was before Stack Overflow, but now Stack Overflow is obviously a very good resource. But yeah, nothing specific. And now
0: to the meat of it, what about Elixir?
2: So, Elixir, so I, joined, I started with Elixir back when I was at a company called um, Hobnob that makes like a mobile app to like, get people together for events. And oh, are they still <laughs>
0: around? How are they doing
2: these days? <laughs> Sorry, <that's laughs> yeah, they're, they're funny. still around. Okay, but cool. yes, yeah, it's, it's definitely rough with um, uh, coronavirus. And that was actually when I
0: switched companies. But you think that Hawaii wouldn't have gotten it? You guys should have just been like, don't come here. Stay, stay, <laughs> stay home, stay home, mainlanders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. We did try some of that, but yeah, as a there's U.S. state, you can't actually close your borders—not like New Zealand right. or
2: something. But yeah, so yeah, so I was at um, Hobnob, which is written. The backend for that is written in um, Ruby on Rails. So we had to—we were developing like a a better uh, messaging system for it. So we looked at a various um, different um, options. We were using like the very first version. We were actually using um, Pusher, which just can create like messages and you get them on like other devices, but you're kind of like limited in that. And, and it's an external service. So you can't like define custom behavior as much, but we implemented. Yeah. Our new chat service in Elixir and Dana it was great.
0: You're working in Hobnob You're writing in Ruby and rails. They decide they're going to make a chat service for an events app. How does that like, can you give a little bit more detail there or?
2: Yeah, so you can ask questions about the event or chat chat live during the events, send DMs to people.
0: So it's like a microservice or it's acting like a microservice for the main rail Yeah,
2: side. yeah, it kind of is. Because the Ruby on Rails side is all just like a, a monolith and then the all the Elixir stuff has a separate separate service. So I wouldn't really say it was microservice because it's just the two services. And then eventually we started moving some things over to to Elixir.
1: So were you a Ruby developer before you started working on that project?
2: Uh yeah. Yes, yeah, so I did Ruby at a few other other places after college.
1: Cool. So you learned Elixir mostly on the job then, or did they do any kind yeah, of
2: external stuff to train you up? Yeah, it's completely on the job. And then just kind of on my own. One one course that I did like was um um Dave Thomas's course. I forget the name of it right now, but I really like his um Elixir course.
0: Oh, we love Dave. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So, can you speak a little bit about what you're doing now? What your current projects look like with Elixir?
2: Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so right now, I'm at a company called um, Animal Repair Shop, which is based on the type or uh, a character from um, Do Andres Dream of Electric Sheep? Which is what um, Blade Runner is from.
0: Wait. Animal uh, Repair Shop is what it's called.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So we're like a. Yeah. Our website is somewhat vague. It actually should be updated by the time this goes live. So that should be um, fun. But we're like, we're like a mixed reality um studio. So we do things with like AR, VR, that type of thing, but we don't we haven't actually launched anything as of yet. So I can't I don't know, there's not much I can talk about there. But I work on the the back end that's written in Elixir for that.
0: Is it a big a a pretty big company or are you like the only how many back end developers do you work with? I guess is the question. I was only a small, small handful. So you really get to drive like you're mm-hmm. probably also doing DevOps and like everything over there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very. very <laughs> yeah, I got my hand in just about everything. <laughs> Do you remember, um, I'm going to jump back to Hobnob, like I said, we're going to jump all over the place. But I'm curious, mm-hmm. when you were at Hobnob, and and I, I, could you just maybe ca- kind of tell the story a little bit of how, I mean, did they ask you, were you part of the design process, part of the decision-making process, choosing to write it in Elixir? Can just give us a little bit more of the narrative around that.
2: Yeah, so the the CTO brought it up as a something we need to consider about how to implement the the chat service, whether just kind of continue with our current approach and try to improve it, or actually like switch to Elixir. And so
0: So there was yeah, so already you, a chat service built on Rails.
2: Kind of. I mean you could you could create comments basically. It wasn't really chat. It was just comments and it was just like plain messages. There was no no images. Nothing, mm. nothing rich in that sense.
0: Was it built on Action Cable.
2: No, this is before that. Okay, so like so it's just the long. Yeah, so it's just it's just a database model and pusher messages. Just okay. Just strings, really.
0: <laughs> and then on your roadmap, you get this new like this enhanced chat feature and the CT. Yeah, cell. and we wanted
2: to have like presence and stuff also. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so initially I had, to be, I had to be convinced a little bit just because I was worried about how long it would take to like spin up a whole new like service. Mm-hmm. But given the all the requirements we had, I think I felt like it made sense.
0: When you were doing that exploration or trying to get convinced, did you, were you, I don't know, you know, people build to do apps and have every JavaScript framework, <laughs> was there some sort of process there for you to explore the language and anything that sticks out in your mind as far as like an aha moment or a hurdle that made you more productive?
2: The main thing that sticks out to me about that time was the reading a couple of like Phoenix like blog posts. I think one of them was the, the like road to 2 million WebSocket connections. We'll mm-hmm. see just about the performance of uh, Elixir, especially relative to, to Ruby on Rails and ActiveRecord. There's just a lot of performance benefits that you can get with Elixir.
0: Uh, that's a super famous blog post, but maybe you could give the audience like the too long didn't read version of that blog post.
2: Yeah, so the Phoenix team like took a machine in the cloud um fairly beefy and just pushed it to see like how many connections they could get um live connected to like one single machine. And so I think initially it started somewhat relatively low. It started like a hundred thousand connections. And then they looked into like what was causing the performance problems and using observer or some similar tool and they saw like one of the presence um processes had like a large um backlog in the their message queue. And so they okay, let's fix that. And the next day they try it again, they get up to like 300,000 or something, and they find like another bottleneck. And then without too much effort, they got up to 2 million um, simultaneous WebSocket connections and they were able to send um, messages over it. So it's just really inspiring.
0: And this is like ancient history now from 2015. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so That's how long, how long ago. ago were you doing this work at Hobnob?
2: I was doing it about three years ago.
0: Okay. Yeah. So you're like pretty early to the Elixir world. Yeah.
2: Yeah, not too long after 1.0, I
0: think.
1: But really, how early is early? What's the total number of years for Elixir in in like in real life now? It's like Eric, nine.
0: Uh, version one came out in 2014.
2: Yeah, I think 2013 yeah. ish is like when it became known. So we're still pretty early days, regardless.
1: Yeah, so early to the Elixir world, it's like yeah, halfway through its lifetime or something.
0: Mm, yeah. I want to go back to this question because I'm always curious when you're learning Elixir for the first time, like were there any kind of turning point moments for you in terms of like language features clicking into place and just being like, Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I'm so glad that I get to use this now.
2: (laughs) I felt like it was just like constant stream of that for me. (laughs) Everything just really, (laughs) really clicked for me. I like one of the things that I really like about Elixir is just how, how um, explicit it is about everything and that's kind of more a cultural thing and then also just definitely like pattern matching and the immutability is great you don't have to create yeah classes for things that don't really fit classes (laughs) yeah i remember the first resource I, the main resource i went through initially was just the getting started guide for elixir on the official website and i feel like that's just written very well and i i don't know generally feel like that's not too common from like a first party resource. So I just enjoy that a lot.
1: So jumping to your, your current job, you mentioned, you know, it's a smaller team. It's kind of a new, new thing. Website should Mm -hmm. be updated soon. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys chose Elixir and what it's sort of like spitting up a new team with Elixir and that whole experience?
2: Yeah. So we didn't have too much of a discussion of it just because the the team was already, everybody's already familiar with Elixir. And so to us, it just made sense as a, a backend because Elixir is just a great general backend programming language. Even if you don't need like necessarily really need like all the concurrency and presence and whatnot.
0: I know what everybody's really gonna be excited to hear about is Elixir LS. So if you could just from the top, tell us what it is, why do we need it? What problem does it solve?
2: Yeah, so Elixir LS is the Elixir language server, which is a server that implements the language server protocol, which is a protocol from or written like by Microsoft, partially, maybe partially for VS Code. But the general idea is that rather than every um, programming language editor pair having to write a full extension that supports each language. So we'd have to have like a VS Code Elixir extension, a Emacs, Extension, a Vim extension. You can just have one server that talks this common protocol, and you can use that same um, protocol in every different editor. And each editor just needs to implement the protocol, and then now they can support any any given language that has a language server. So Elixir LS is the Elixir version of that, and it's great because it gives you all these like IDE type features. So you can do go to definition. You can find out where a function is used in your project. You can get some smart um, auto completions, even for things like um, your Ecto schemas when you're writing a query, just lots of great stuff like that. So I definitely recommend it for any any Elixir developer.
0: Yeah, I use Vim. I've I've never heard of Emacs or the other thing that you mentioned. Uh, <laughs> but I, sure. I'm, curious, I'm curious. Yeah, no, we've got we've got a low key lang- uh, uh, editor war at Smart Logic that I perpetuate. Without mm-hmm. allowing my opposition to have the floor to defend themselves, what? I
1: think she can hold her own against you, though.
0: But she's not here, so <laughs> doesn't matter. Sorry, Tina. <laughs> How did you get involved with the language server project, Jason?
2: Okay, so I got involved because I had noticed that the language server, and then it looks for a sense that it depends on, had both kind of stalled. This was in, uh, I think, like twenty, maybe late twenty eighteen or so. And so I was talking about it on the Elixir Slack with Travoke and Andrew Summers. And so Travoke was like, we should, basically, we should do something about this. And so he created a GitHub organization, which is, so GitHub slash um, Elixir LSP, so language server protocol. And he forked the two repositories um, into there. And we started um, working on maintaining and merging some of the pull requests. And just because, yes, we just didn't want the tools to stall partially because I think good developer tooling is um, pretty crucial for uh, adoption now.
0: Can you talk a little bit about maybe the architecture of the project? Like what it, you know, if I'm a new developer kind of getting started looking at contributing to it, What where would I, how would you kind of give me an overview of the project?
2: Yeah. So yes, the main library that Elixir LS is built on is Elixir sense. So Elixir sense does all the code analysis. So it can parse Elixir files, and it also has a um, error tolerant parser because when you're doing um, programming, a lot of times you'll be editing a file, which means your file won't actually compile at the current state that it is in. But you still want to have things like auto completion and such work. So so Elixir Sense can do error tolerant po- parsing, recover from like as smartly as it can from like five different errors. So it has like a lot of the analysis of the the Elixir AST they would get if you're doing like a quoting, some piece of code. And then Elixir LS builds on top of that and actually implements all the various language server protocol response and the JSON format and all that.
0: And when you were getting started, do you remember what you initially like ju- jumped into working on on the language server?
2: The first thing I remember working on was on the Elixir Sense side and helping it support... I think maybe Elixir 1.8 or so, because because Elixir Sense cares so much about the specifics of the language. It's actually rather, I guess you could use, or it's rather sensitive to new Elixir versions. So one of the maintenance tasks is to test it on new version and then make any updates as necessary. And yeah, also both projects actually use a pretty good amount of some of the private um, Elixir internals. So those have to be maintained.
1: I know that some of our, our hardest code problems that we've solved can turn into our most fun stories to talk about. So what, what was an interesting thing that you learned from working on this project? Was there a very difficult problem that you've solved up until this point?
2: I think one of the hardest things to solve in this for me is just kind of like the community aspects of it and just trying to um, help it stay a community project. And so part of that is to being responsive on issues and pull requests and trying to get other people to come in and contribute to the project. That's because I, I see it as like a shared project for the um, Elixir ecosystem. So it's great to have lots of different um, contributors to it.
1: Yeah. How do you actually go about finding contributors? Do you use the Slack or some other means? Yeah. Sometimes on Slack, we
2: have language server um, channel on the Elixir Slack that we use. Um, I'm on the Discord as well and the forum, of course. And then we also have a issue that I had um, pinned on the Elixir LS repo for a little bit that was a call for contributors. And so just asking people there.
0: You gave a talk about Elixir LS.
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did. That was for Elixir Conf um, this year. The Elixir Conf US.
0: What kind of, I, I guess if you want to give the TLDR of that talk for the audience, I'm sure they'll go listen to it afterwards. That would be a good place to start. But I'm also curious, like what, if, if you learned anything in preparing the talk and kind of putting it together that stands out to you now?
2: Yeah, I don't know if I would. If I learned anything too specific from it, but the overall topic was LS and the shared governance of it, which is kind of what I've been talking about just now, and yeah, I went into more detail about some of the implementation of it and the different some of the different processes and the async nature of it.
1: And uh, Elixirconf was completely virtual this year, so was there anything kind of different or strange about you know giving this talk uh, virtually? Was it your first virtual conference that you were speaking at?
2: yeah that was my first, yeah so it was different than what you would expect from a in person conference and I guess the one of the hardest parts for me as a speaker was just not being able to actually like see the audience and get like some like real time feedback from them yeah but overall i i I enjoyed it. Jim did a good good job, I think, given all the constraints and <laughs> craziness that we have right now,
1: yeah. I was like, I was jumping around so much during Elixir Conf that I feel like I only got snippets of everyone's talk. So when I get some downtime, I'm really just gonna like sit down and just play everyone's talk. So I'm looking forward to hearing yours again. So back to Elixir LS. uh, Is there anything new coming down the pipeline that's exciting? Or do you need any more contributions? Can you shout out that you need some help? I'm sure our listeners would love to join in.
2: Yeah, we always I mean we always could use some some more help and more more contributors. There's a whole bunch of things that would be great to to implement that we're not implementing right now. One of the things that's currently in the pipeline is some formatting speed improvements that Ben from um Absinthe has been working on. So hopefully that'll get get merged in soon. Another thing that's got merged recently is the ability to run um, tests like um, x tests from, from Elixir LS. So currently that's only supported in um, VS Code because you need to have like a little, some code on the um, editor side to do the integration of the specific the specifics for that. There's an Emacs version that is hopefully going to be merged soon for that. Uh, I'm also working hopefully on a creating like a configuration file for Elixir LS. So you can either like enable some like experimental features and just control it per project.
1: You mentioned something a little earlier when you were talking about how you got into this project. Uh, good developer tools are crucial to adoption. This whole season is about adopting Elixir and hopefully making it easier for our listeners to grasp onto Elixir if they're learning or bring their team up to speed with Elixir if that's what they're doing, or or even pitching to bring, you know, Elixir into their companies. So I was wondering if you could expand on that, that thought a little bit. I don't think anyone so far this season has talked about developer tools.
2: Yeah, there's a couple couple ways to think about it. Some is just the developer tooling helps people to understand the language better by being able to experiment with their code and like they can write some code and they can use some of the editor stuff to either to understand like exactly what's what's happening, whether that's doing like a uh, go to definition and then obviously like things like syntax highlighting is like a very basic thing, but that just helps you understand like as immediately as you're writing it, you can see like, oh, okay, now, okay, this is getting interpreted as like a string now, or now this is a syntax error. And you can see why it is without having to switch context and go to the terminal and try to actually compile your code.
1: Yeah, I can say like from personal experience while I was learning, I think one of the first things I set up when I set up VS Code, sorry, Justice, was um
0: <laughs> I've never heard of that. What is it? Yeah.
1: Anyways, I definitely like I had somebody tell me, Oh, install this, this, and this, these package tools or whatever, and Elixir LS was one of them. I didn't really think about it. And I'm a very color coordinated person, so or a color oriented person, if I'm looking at the code, and it's the wrong color, I think something's wrong. Like if, if I have one function that does something and another function that does something else, and the second function has something that looks kind of identical, and they're the wrong colors, I'm just like, I'm reading the words and they look correct, but they're the wrong color. So obviously, I've done something wrong, or I just forgot to save or something. So I will say, yeah, looking back onto like my learning experience, I found that very helpful. Also, to being able to dig into function definitions and like seeing where something was made and jump around the code that way definitely helped me kind of unwrap what was going on. I'm not a fan of magic, as I say, even though we're wizards here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, one of the yeah one of the things that the tooling cannot really help you with is understanding your dependencies better. So you can do a go to definition on a module from a dependency, and you can actually see the implementation of that, and with elixir i find that's really really very helpful because i feel like the vast majority of dependencies that i look at in elixir is actually rather understandable once you actually dig into what's happening there's only there's a few that might use like make heavy use of macros but for the most part it's pretty pretty easy to understand and i think that can really help grow you as a elixir developer also just seeing reading reading some code
0: i want to ask a kind of a high level question before we start to wrap this up I'm curious what you think needs to happen to the language and to the community in order for Elixir to become a more mainstream back-end option. I
2: think there's a few different ways we could tackle that as a community. I think one is just more, more libraries in Elixir, and that'll definitely happen with time. But I think if we try to make that a focus in the community, you can have it happen sooner. So just for any any specific thing that you want to do, just having a library, being able to rely on there most likely being a library that you can use for that. I think that's that's very great for adoption, especially for like startups. Is you don't want to spend too much time that's not on your core um, business domain. And related to that, something I would love to see is people, because generally, like um, a lot of these open source projects are developed by a single person. but they may eventually either get burnt out or leave Elixir or programming for any specific reason. That's actually what happened with, with Elixir LS. That was 'cause that was originally developed by Jake Becker, so we owe him a great um big um thanks for doing all the initial um, development and getting it to where where it was um at that point. But he actually switched to he doesn't even do programming anymore. He does he's been like working on like building his house somewhere out in the the Midwest or something. So being able to switch um, stewardship of open source projects and continuing them beyond the initial developers, I think is is great for the language like that. It recently happened with XAWS. So that's great for adoption. And then obviously just more, more developer tooling, just improving Elixir LS and such, I think would be, is great for, for adoption and getting some other niceties. So it'd be great if somebody would uh, submit a PR that allows you to um, like auto import or auto alias a module, based on auto-completion, or be able to rename your your module or a variable or function.
1: Now that you say that we don't have it, I need it now.
2: <laughs> yes. So, so you're going to submit that PR in a couple of weeks, right, Cindy? <laughs>
1: um, let's see how the winter goes. Awesome.
0: Well, I think before... We let you go with any plugs or ask to the audience. We just want to give you one more chance to give any advice that you have for anyone that's trying to bring Elixir into a company selling Elixir, so to speak, to stakeholders or anything like that. If there's anything like that that you can maybe talk about before we close out, this might be a good way to wrap it up.
2: I think a good first step would be to read Adopting Elixir if you're interested in books because that's a really great... Insure about um, adopting Elixir at different companies. And I think it has some specific tips on bringing Elixir into companies. I think a great way to start it is to do like a, some sort of like brown bag lunch session where you talk about Elixir and why you really like Elixir. Maybe mm-hmm. show some, maybe a little side project or something you've built in it or some other, maybe just even just a project from the community that's cool. So when you're starting a new project, you could propose Elixir as one of the options, especially for internal tooling, uh, just because it's a little bit low lower risk there, because uh, a lot of times those projects aren't as large. So if they need to be rewritten, they could be. And LiveView is a really great option there as well, just because you can get so much done in a short time with LiveView. And a lot of times for these internal tools, you might need some some interactivity, or it's just a great selling point to be able to see things update live, even though without having to put in like hundreds of hours of effort into that.
0: Cool. At the end of every episode, we'd love to give the time to the guests to make any plugs or asks for the audience shamelessly. self so promote anything you want. The time is yours. So take it away. Yeah. So
2: yeah, definitely one of my something to promote would just be um, just you, that everybody can get involved with um, Elixir LS and we welcome um, new contributors. I'd love to work with you. See another thing, one of the other projects I have in Elixir is called PrivCheck. So um, PrivCheck allows you to see if your code is using any private functions or modules, and you get like a a compiler warning there. It uses the compiler tracing hooks for that. It'd be great if people would um, try that out. Yeah, those are my main plugs right now. That's cool. Or you can also check out. You can also check out um, Depthviz, which I did uh, um, CoBeam um, Brazil talk about. But that allows you to see all the dependencies of your various modules, and especially the compile time dependencies. So you can better understand why changing one file will cause like 100 files to recompile, and you have to wait for like three seconds while they all recompile. And it's really, it's a really visual tool, which is something I like also. Lit, that's awesome.
0: Thank you, Jason. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. Thank you again to our guest, Jason Axelson, and to my co host, Sunday Mint, and my producer, Eric Ostrich. Once again, I am Justice Epen. Elixir Wizards is a Smart Logic podcast. Here at Smart Logic, we're always looking to take on new projects building web apps in Elixir, Rails, and React, infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, and mobile apps using react native we'd love to hear from you if you have a project we could help you with don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast player you can also find us on instagram and twitter and facebook so add us on all of those you can find me personally at just use a pen eric at eric ostrich and sunday at sunday kin and join us again next week on elixir wizards for more on adopting elixir